Hello, folks. This is Sean Zock. We've got no Dylan DeChair joining us this week on the Drop Zone, but we do have an Alan Shipnuck. Shipnuck interviewed Michael Murphy. You may know that name, but if you don't, Mr. Murphy is the author of Golf in the Kingdom, undoubtedly one of the most popular golf books of all time. This interview was done after Mr. Murphy got an up-close-and-personal look inside the ropes with Tiger Woods this past year at Pebble Beach. I promise you will enjoy it. So, without any further ado, here is Alan Shipnuck and Michael Murphy. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck. I am delighted to be joined by Michael Murphy, the author of Golf in the Kingdom, still going strong at 89. Michael, thank you for doing this. Well, it's a pleasure. You have such a unique place in the game. Uh, You wrote... Golf in the Kingdom as in your early 40s. I'm not going to say it was a lark, but it was, uh, you, were not a, you were not a golf writer. You were not a novelist. It just emerged from you. And ever since you've been this oracle, you've, you've been this, this grand old man of letters in the game. You, you've helped shape how we think about it. So are you still tickled that all these years later, people are still finding this novel and enjoying it? Well, I, I love it. I, you could say I channeled it. Because it was not only the first book I wrote, but the first book I'd ever tried to write. Um, And I started it as I was turning 40. And it was published in uh, 1972, 47 years ago. Um, So when I was 41. So here we are now, uh, 48 years later. And um, it has this life. taught me I could write. So that in itself was an enormous pleasure and um, a big force uh, to shape my subsequent life. I had never thought of myself as a writer. My brother uh, was the designated writer in our family, my, and he had been a successful uh, novelist, and uh, my grandfather had delivered John Steinbeck in Salinas, where you and I were both born, and, um, you know, Roles can get us signed to kids growing up, and I was supposed to be a, a doctor, and uh, then it morphed for me into I thought I'd be a psychiatrist, and then got to Stanford and found myself in a class on comparative religions uh, that led me to the philosophy and the way of life that has shaped me ever since when I was 19 and 20. But never along the way there was a thought I'd start writing books. So anyway, when I sat down to write this book, it really did come in a flood, and it's um, been living in me uh, ever since. I've written eight books now, but um, that one, uh, if it were to be one of my children, it would be among my books. It was my first child and by far the most successful, and um, I would say influential. Books are mysterious things. I like to say sometimes they're like UFOs, you know, unidentified writing objects, UWOs or UROs, unidentified reading objects that can open worlds to people. And and that's what's actually happened with this book, with Golf in the Kingdom. Well, one of the things about our shared hometown of Salinas, which is just a dusty little farming community in the Central Valley, known to readers of John Steinbeck, but doesn't have that much else to recommend it, but it's not that far from Pebble Beach Golf Links, which figures uh, prominently in, in my life story and and was important part of your golf education. So tell us about your early days of playing Pebble with, with your brother. And of course, you guys would 
haunt the Crosby clam bake back when it was really a big deal with Hogan and Sneed and Nelson and Bing Crosby was the biggest star in the world. So is important from Stanford, but it starts with your golf education before that. Well, that's right. I mean, we've had very fortunate childhoods, you and I and my brother. Um, and um, yes, we would uh, be there at the Crosby. So I got to follow Ben Hogan around and watched him up close and personal before and after his accident, which was in, um, I guess, January of 1949. So he missed that whole year in the hospital. But it's, uh, he used to partner with Bing Crosby, and that was fun. And Johnny Weissmuller, who um, was the great Olympic champion who became Tarzan in the movies. Anyway, it was those were great events. And, of course, playing Pebble, which uh, to this day re- remains by far my favorite course. And it has to be. I mean, there's no course in the world, I think, more beautiful than Pebble. There are others that, when you look at them, would be beautiful. But to match the incredible range of moods it gets into with the shifting light, the shifting fog, the filaments of fog that cut across the fairways and all. Uh, But anyway, playing Pebble, seeing uh, some of the players, and particularly Hogan up close, definitely was an influence on on golf in the kingdom, no doubt about it. Well, I mean, he, Hogan himself makes a handful of cameos in the text. And clu- yeah. What was it that, that moved you so much about him? Well, his magnetism on the course then, he won eight out of 11 majors he played in over that period from 48 to 50 through 53. And he, um, after the accident, he played just 18 tournaments through 53, I think, and he won 10 of them. He won virtually every major. So he was the top of the game. He was to golf then the way Tiger Woods has been. It was also the, the quality of his presence. And when he would practice out um, just by the second hole at Pebble, for those who have been to Pebble, now it's been uh, built up. But uh, there was a big field of practice and the Pros as well as the onlookers got to sit down and watch him. Maybe there'd be 250 people, a big, big arena there watching him practice. And it was a sight to behold because he had an immense repertoire of shots, you know, to fade, to draw um, low, high, and um, the silence. And that made a huge impression on me. And I'm sure that as I sat down to write, though I didn't plot the book or shape the book, uh, deliberately around him, that influence, I'm sure, was in there like an acorn growing into this consciousness of what the game can be as a, a kind of, um, if you want to call it yogic, you can call it contemplative, you can call it shamanic, even exercise. Golf itself is what in the Eastern martial arts you could call a kata, which is a series of movements that trigger, uh, it is said, our esoteric anatomy. That is the complete person we are, both in the flesh and in our soul, or in the consciousness itself. And golf swing, you could argue, is an unnatural act. It's not like running or throwing, which our species learn to do and could do uh, to survive. But you don't take a, you don't tee up a, a ball and hit it at the uncharging tiger 
you know, as a Paleolithic yeah, member of a tribe. So it's an acquired skill that requires the most depths of concentration and commitment to play it well. And for this reason, uh, and other reasons, it evokes corresponding states of mind, which can be interfered with, with strong emotions, whether rage or, or grief or sorrow, which can, the game can produce by this fiendish challenge to get this small ball into this tiny hole and to go after it for four or five hours over a course of four miles. You know, it's on the face of it an absurdity. Why are we doing this? And that can occur to you while playing. Why am I doing this? But you do it and you have these incredible pleasures and experiences. And then, as uh, I've discovered through uh, respondents to the book, experiences you have to call supernormal, mystical, occult. Uh, in other words, the game can do that. And um, it helps to be in a beautiful place like Pebble Beach. The, the passion you bring to this conversation just leaps off the page. I mean, it's, that's, I think, why the book is endured, because... As you say, it's this pursuit of ours is, is 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 maddening and it makes no sense, but we do it anyway. And you were able to put a voice to it. I was having a, a, a correspondence with Brad Faxon about the book, and he said, "What I love about it is it made it okay to to speak of these things." And and you gave a certain vocabulary to this experience that the golfers have had. But first, you needed those tools. So you matriculate to Stanford, and. As a fellow Salinas person, I know it's not the most open-minded place. You know, it's an ag town. It's a little conservative. But you have sort of a life-altering experience at Stanford. And so right. what exactly happened there? Well, I, I was so inspired by this professor, uh, Frederick Spiegelberg. He'd um, uh, born and raised in Germany and um, taught, was teaching at Stanford comparative religions. So um, I got exposed to Eastern philosophy and meditation and contemplation, and and particularly the um, worldview of an um, Indian philosopher uh, named Sri Aurobindo, uh, who had been educated in England, a very elite education. His family had uh, instructed his patrons in England never to let him speak any Indian language, so he wanted him to master English, but he was a philosopher and writer, kind of a Renaissance figure, and um, developed a worldview that's been the most basic influence on me. Uh, there are many influences that have uh, prompted me to do what I've done. And of course, the mystery is why I chose this story. I could have gone in so many other directions, but I consider myself very lucky. Uh, Norman Mailer, the writer argued that every aspiring writer is given one free one by God. And that was my free one. And it was the first one. And uh, it, in turn, Golf in the Kingdom, has shown me that um, this birth of new capacities is much more common than most people realize. Because uh, immediately upon publication, people started letting me know about their mystical experiences or occult experiences on golf courses. I wrote the book, you know, out of some inspiration, but I, if you had asked me then that people would be having these experiences, you know, immediately a 
a lawyer in New York wrote to me and was just couldn't get over this book. It had helped him understand that how on uh, this particular occasion, he'd been standing on the tee of a 400-yard hole and, and there were no players between him and his foursome in the green, said he could see clearly a ball marker the size of a dime on this hole a quarter of a mile away. Two of his playing partners couldn't even see the green and they got there and the, it, it was there. So uh, he wondered, is this the sort of thing you're talking about? Or a woman writes to me right away and says, uh, your book helped me because not long ago I was playing the 18th hole of, uh, at my country club uh, as the sun was setting. And when we got to the green, the sun had set, but it was still shining through the green. And I felt that maybe this was some afterglow on my eye, some retinal uh, shock or something. But when I went into the clubhouse, it was shining through the walls. And it shone like that for three days. And I was in an exaltation. And uh, thank you for writing the book because I found an author who might understand this experience. So when you, then I started getting these things. It um, pushed me in the direction of seeing the genius of sport to elicit this experience, but not reported by sports writers very often. You know, there have been a few writers who have glimpsed this. John Updike, he recognized this, and uh, Bernard Darwin, you know, the great writer, the grandson of Charles Darwin. Um, uh, he read The Links of Eiderdown, one of his short stories. I mean, he certainly could see it. The Mystery of Golf by Arnold Holtane. So there's been a vein of golf writing that shows this power of the game, not only to enchant, but to reveal these capacities. So that in turn has led me into other sports. And so I've been trotted out to <laughs> uh, meet with coaches and players uh, ever since about what you would call the inner game of sport. And that in turn has led me to appreciate how prevalent it is in everyday life, but not commonly discussed and recognized until recently. Thank you, God, for giving me Golf in the Kingdom as my first book. <laughs> well, it wasn't, it wasn't just a gift. It was also a discovery because to, to place this in, in the context of, of your, your personal timeline. So in this, this quest, this search that began at Stanford led you in your, in your mid-20s to, to go to India to study. But along the way, you made a little pit stop in St. Andrews. And this is an important part of the tale. You, had, you played a little golf and you had, you had quite a, an experience there. And so, um, and, and right. That, right. that would have been in, in the mid-50s. Right, 1956, yeah. So let, let's just go ahead and dispel one thing. There's, there's been a lot of conjecture about Burning Bush, which, is, of course, yeah. is the venue in Golf in the Kingdom. And people at Crail have tried to say it was modeled after their golf course. Um, <laughs> but if, if you, there's, right. a, there's a lot of little clues in the text. It's pretty clearly yeah. the old course, am I right. right? That's right. And, okay, now, the writing of the book itself partook of the uncanny. I mean, for example, when I was writing the book, you know, it occurred to me the profound archetypes that philosophers have 
dwelt on, starting with going back to Plato in the West and great thinkers in the East uh, in the common life. You know, it, it occurred to me that um, golf, you always end up where you started. You have to go back to the first tee every round. So it occurred and to that's me. That's a great word. It's around. It, it's it, around. It brings you back. But it's also a journey. Yeah. So I started calling it the journey round, around. Now, this has huge implications in metaphysical thinking. I mean, we could uh, talk about that uh, for hours. So it occurred to me that Burning Bush, which, yes, was a veiled description of St. Andrews, the old course, must have been built then on a grave. I had no idea that it had been on a grave. The 18th green at St. Andrews, the old course, at one time had been a graveyard. I had, I swear to God, it was not a subconscious influence. It occurred to me just making that connection. So, well, another, you know what I love about that, Michael, is when you, it's in it's in the book as well. When you reach into the hole and you, you're you're going, you're you're putting your arm into the earth, and you know it's a graveyard there at St Andrews. Who knows what might greet you on the way back? So, uh, it, and it, I there's an, uh, something uh, just a throwaway line in the book about how when you grow up in Salinas, one of the courses cut the holes too deep. And that feeling of, of just plunging deeper and deeper into the earth, that, that's really stuck with me. So the fact that it's on top of a graveyard adds a whole other dimension to it. Yeah. See, writing itself, like golf, like many activities, becomes, without your knowing it, a tremendous practice. A yoga, a shamanic exercise without knowing it. This is the, you could call it the mysticism of everyday life. So in writing the book, and so these things started to happen. Now, for example, Crail, uh, Clint Eastwood did go to Crail, did write his name on a wall there, whether he remembers it or not, because he wanted to make a movie of Golf in the Kingdom, and he uh, entertained the notion of making it a Crail. And one reason is, is that they have a three-par there that is a mirror image of a hole I describe in Golf in the Kingdom. Now, I've never been to Crail. I had never heard of the Crail Golf Course. But uh, this is a, um, a three-par that goes up to a, a tiny summit. And um, then it falls off on one side on a, a cliff. And down under the cliff lives this teacher of Shiva Sirens, a protagonist, who lives in a cave down there uh, when he's not living where he usually lives. And he's a kind of a, another um, mysterious figure. Um, but there is, Crail has, on a cliff, and there is this, uh, so how did that happen? How did I come to that? So there were a number of these things in writing the book that tuned me in to a big something, which I'm still trying to understand. How would I have put these things together? And it comes uh, understanding it out of my studies of a lifetime and uh, the, the witness of countless millions, perhaps thousands certainly of sages and seers that our subliminal mind, our unconscious mind, but uh, has enormous reach and gives us a latent clairvoyance. And when we focus on something of a great concern to us, 
or of interest or compulsion enables us to see things and do things that our parents never told us about or that our, our ministers never told us about or that our professors don't know about. We go beyond ourselves and we go about beyond the common understanding of human capacity and human uh, potential. So in writing that book, it, it was, I was, it, it was a kind of ecstasy writing it. I mean, first of all, that I could write. I had never tried to write a book. It just came. I, I more or less channeled it. And it was never seriously edited. Well, it, it didn't need much editing. It's so beautifully written. It's so, the well, prose is so graceful. Part of the pleasure is every page is, it, it shows your, your education and your, your, um, your quest is because it's just packed with historical references yeah. and Eastern thinkers and poets. <laughs> and uh, it's really a pleasure to read. But when, when you talk about the subliminal mind, the book didn't come out until 15 years after your, your journey to Scotland. And in the interim, you did co-found Esalen. And for the listeners who aren't familiar with Esalen, it's this incredible piece of property on the cliffs of Big Sur where there's natural hot springs, which has always been a draw to people. And they, it offers workshops that you can take on almost any topic of, of self-improvement and expanding your mind. And it's really a very special place that, um, that's an important part of Big Sur and the whole Northern California community of, of, of thinkers and, and seekers. But so that, that, that's all part of it, right? So in, in the 60s, Esalen became this magnet for people from all over the world who were, were trying to be, I think that the term in the book is like astronauts of the inner mind. And so as you're thrown into contact with all these creative people and, and all of this non-traditional thinking, how do you think that eventually spurred the writing process for you? Well, you know, it'd be hard to um, really specify which people may have influenced which, but it was the whole climate of opinion and discovery uh, that uh, Esalen catalyzed. We became a great gathering place for this human potential movement, uh, the, 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 the California counterculture. So, uh, those ideas are all embedded in the book. So um, it's better that I wrote it when I was 40 than if I tried to write it when I was 25. Uh, more was stored up. Uh, I understood more and saw more. Although the, I would argue that the most fundamental contours of the worldview that underlies Golf and Kingdom was there from the beginning for me, from that class at Stanford. I mean, the from Aurobindo and all the other influences, William James, I can name many influences, but that worldview, the foundational aspects, um, that this is what life is about, pressing to go beyond itself. This is what gave birth to the religions. But the privilege of being in that first class, it was like Spiegelberg's phrase, the religion of no religion, or William James, who said when these revelations happen, often, they, they're embedded in the particular beliefs of the community that catalyzed it. So if you were Christian, it's going to have a Christian coloration. If, it's, if you were Jewish, it's going to have a Jewish metaphysics. If you're Islamic, you're going to be this. Or if you're Hindu or Buddhist. But that the modern quest, this is now modern thinkers, um, is how to 
when freedom from what William James called the overbeliefs that often accompany revelation. Um, and that uh, to press forward, you've got to have an imagination and have a framework that can match the power and the uh, reach of this emerging supernature, let's call it that. Now in golf, back to golf, uh, that people would be having these experiences on golf courses, you know, strikes some people in the early years as an utter absurdity. I mean, that a person playing around a golf would go into these ecstasies. And this woman who was a classic, but the sun was shining through the earth itself, that the walls of her clubhouse became like gossamer through which the light of God was shining. I mean, this would be language of Rumi or, you know, Kabir or, or um, St. John of the Cross. I mean, on a, from a golf round of golf? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. I mean, people would say, what? how could this be? Well, it is. <laughs> you cannot escape this larger life that wants to emerge in us. And golf has a particular genius to bring this out. And, um, you know, I have compared it to other sports. And I've gotten into thinking, what, which sports bring which superpowers out? You know what I mean? Yeah. Golf brings, a, you could probably argue it brings the widest array of supernormal experiences of any sport. I, I could, um, if I was in a, a fun a jousting match, I'll take golf, you take any other sport, and I, I, I can show you that <laughs> your sport is not going to bring out this or that. You see what I mean? Golf has a particular genius for this, and uh, virtually all sports can do it, but all walks of life. I'm particularly interested um, right now in um, people who play in symphony orchestras. Uh, you start to talk to them. Again, they're like these great athletes. I mean, they had these experiences, but no one told them. No one gave them the context or the language. Uh, and then they, wow, how did you know this? I said, I'm just guessing. But you, you've you been playing the top violin there in the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra. And you must have, when you played with Leonard Bernstein that time, or um, I, I could tell you endless stories. I mean, it's, somebody's going to write a story out of that world that will be not unlike golf in the kingdom was to sport. Um, so it's, it's um, pervasive in human nature that we find ways to do beautiful things that trigger this array of uh, consciousness expanding experiences. It got this wonderful reception from certain, um, you would have to say thought leaders, say like John Updike, you know, he said golf is the sport in which the, the walls between us and the supernatural are rubbed thinnest. And he gave it a very favorable review in the, in the New Yorker in 72. And then um, Herbert Warren Wind, who the leading golf writer in, in the New Yorker and very friendly. But then on the other hand, oh my God, you could hear the Bronx cheers. I mean, what does this guy think he is? I mean, well, for example, I, I was soon asked to speak to a thousand golf pros in the Superdome in uh, New Orleans after Roger Clemens and um, Reggie Jackson, uh, who was somehow talking to this thing of golfers. Well, so they, when they introduced me, the fellow that introduced me, I, I think a lot of them thought I might speak in Gaelic or <laughs> I would, uh, 
So there they were taking notes, looking there, these thousand golfers, and um, some of them proposed that, oh, we should get Murphy to run some of our teaching seminars for teaching pros. So there were two of these in the wake of this presentation, and that um, led to controversy. And we weren't asked back after the first two. And one of the leaders said we, uh, we couldn't, a lot of them thought we should just hand out peyote instead and then have you say a few lines afterwards. <laughs> that, was, that was enough for them. Yeah. So now we're talking back in the 70s. But subsequently, um, you know, uh, it's emerged more and more, but it's still, um, there's resistance. And uh, we, could, uh, we could talk a lot about where does that resistance come from? I'm, I'm consistently surprised at people I would have thought would resist it, um, like um, Ledbetter, the, you know, the, one of the you know, leading teachers of golf technique in, in the wide world. I would have thought he would have a hard time w with this, but he, I saw him film saying, um, you know, there are two sides of the game. There's the game that I teach, and then there's the game that's represented by golf in the kingdom. Well, it floored me to have hear him saying that. I've learned um, along the way from top athletes, almost immediately after the book was published, uh, uh, said they had learned they got to be very careful talking about this stuff in front of big groups of sports writers because you'll get a lot of ridicule. But the contradiction built into that is that we know that the mental side of sports is so important, yeah. and especially in golf where it's it's not a reaction sport. The ball's not coming at you right. quickly, so it's just sitting right. there mocking you. And so <laughs> it's it's all about what happens on internally. And, Amen. And so <laughs> the resistance to the book... Amen. That's a good line, by the way. The ball's sitting there mocking you. I never heard that line. That's a good one. <laughs> it is. Well, it is. And you know, it's interesting. Certain patterns have emerged about these revelations that people have said to me. One of them is um, in putting, even down to the short, in fact, as the putt gets shorter, this fiendish thing occurs of when you look at the hole, it will wink at you. <laughs> One guy said that every time he, he got the, his putts to a certain short length, he saw a loathsome toad sitting on the hill, on, on the hole. Another one told me that when this, when he tightened up this way, he could see Richard Nixon winking at him from the hole. That's <laughs> he, deep. That's deep. <laughs> I mean, it's because when you we compress, we we tighten up. For a trained pro to miss some of these little foot long putts, you have to know what, what it's that it's psychic. Yeah, it's metaphysical. It has nothing to do with their body. It has to do with their no, mind. No, exactly. Uh, exactly. No, it's a, it is a supremely mental game, golf is. Uh, once um, I and a buddy, we were classmates at Stanford, we were really bad boys. We sat on, in back of the 18th hole at the Stanford Golf Course. It's a big, handsome course there, laughing at the golf foursomes as they came up, the suffering. We were, we were being very bad. How people in this gorgeous place playing this game came off cursing, some of them throwing their clubs, uh, almost on the edge of tears. I mean, how do we do this to ourselves? Because it, it can, so we bring ourselves. It's um, the game, you know, 
I wrote this in Golf and the King, it becomes an X-ray of the soul. I mean, if you play a round of golf, many people have said this forever. You, Bob Hogan used to say that. Four or five holes, you know a lot about that person. You know, and we bring ourselves. Psych psychedelics, you know, it is said that with LSD, you become yourself times yourself. A round of golf gets psychedelic. You become yourself. So if you're an angry person, you can get furious out there. And um, a common thing is that people start to blame God for their bad shots. You know, I saw my brother one day. He was maybe 14, I was 16, and I give God the finger because for causing that bad shot, he was furious. <laughs> well, and of course, <laughs> readers of Golf and Kingdom will remember that the protagonist does the same thing on like yes. the third green of Burning Bush. That's so. right. That's right. He, uh, Murphy, Michael Murphy, he gives God, he flips the birds and he <laughs> That always God. makes me laugh. <laughs> so you've, you've stopped playing now for the most part, but it, the game is still inside of you. I, I had the great pleasure of, of taking a, Michael out to the U.S. Open because he'd said he'd always want to see Tiger Woods play in person. And we sneaked him inside the ropes and we did that. Um, uh, this year at Pebble Beach, and I remember you telling me afterwards, it brought back some some physical sensations. Some some things were awakened inside of you. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, you know, we remember all of us with our whole body. We don't remember. I mean, this is straight modern physiology with something uh, with our brain. We um, and again, this is where medicine is slowly pushing out into this perception of this larger consciousness we inhabit. Uh, I personally don't believe it's even limited to our body. When people talk about seeing or feeling auras around the body, and this is in the martial arts, you know, ki, chi, whatever, and in the great contemplative traditions in the Judeo-Christian world, it is the spiritual senses tune into things that we don't see through our ordinary senses. Okay, the same with Memory. When we see, let's say, a somebody we, we've been extremely fond of and we haven't seen them for a while and we see them again, it will bring all sorts of feelings that we shared back when. So that happened when, thanks to you, I got to uh, walk around and these were fe uh, feelings. I remember now part of it was being on that golf course uh, uh, with such concentration. I mean, people get very invested in Tiger Woods. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he commands, Hogan got to that. It's more than um, just interest. It's a psychic connection. It's, a, it's more than just a feeling. I believe it is in this realm of what, what the great traditions, contemplative traditions talk about these auras these energy, we, we're still looking for the right language. So actually, I felt that a few times, and I, um, I do, I must confess that I am not likely to watch a golf broadcast on TV unless he's in contention. Then I, then I watch, and then I, I am psychically rooting for him. But uh, that day you took me out there, every time I got into that space, it was more intense than it is when I watch it on television. And it was extremely physical, somatic feeling. Of, um, and this is, it's not enough to call this mere imagination. The imagination is involved. It's a feeling. 
So it was, um, that was not just a visual um, journey that you took me on, but it was a very much a um, long, I mean, a three hour altered set, set of altered states. I was in tiger country. And more than that, I was in tiger at Pebble Beach country. Whoa, that's a good place to be. <laughs> really? I mean, for me, for me, that's like, I'll take that any day the, over going into the further reaches of Tibet. I mean, I'd, hey, <laughs> go to Pebble and Tiger Plain. I, I, I'd choose that every time <laughs> over climbing Mount Everest, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, Tiger has had a great run in golf, but it's going to come to an end. You're you're 89. You're still you're still here and and a, a protein figure. So you were telling me before we started taping this that you've been fiddling around with. Uh, with some pros about a pop could be a, a Chivas iron short story, maybe a short book for the, yeah. the listeners out there who have consumed everything you've typed to this point. Give us a little tease what that might look like. Well, I have maybe a hundred pages of um, more or less random reflections on Chivas irons. You know what? Um, when you get into a novel, many novelists have described this pretty soon. Those figures in your mind are real. They're talking to you. You're just taking dictation. And that did happen to me in, in writing the book. But it is endured. And it, so many people have talked to me about these experiences that it is like a, a, a braided tapestry in my consciousness that it is triggered and it keeps coming up. And then I wrote this sequel. And there are passages in there that I couldn't have written in 1972. I learned things. And uh, so what were Shivas and Seamus up to? in these things I've been writing. You could say, if you want to put it in a more down-to-earth terms, that I'm speculating more broadly. Mm-hmm. But if you, um, in writerly terms, I'm letting these phenomena speak to me. So it's transactional. I mean, I'm... You, okay, somebody would say, well, that, you're making that up. It's just the first... I'm saying, no, my experience is that I'm perhaps seeing something. But finally... What does it evoke in other people who want to tell me, I know what you're talking about. Now, I haven't pushed that edge of the envelope in the first two books, uh, some. Uh, it's there, embedded in Golf and the Kingdom. It's out of the closet a little more in uh, the Kingdom of Shiva's Irons. But in these fragments I've been writing, it gets out even more. So I'm, I'm going further with the world I, of Shiva's Irons and Seamus McDuff. Well, I think I speak for all golf fans when I say we're looking forward to reading it, Mike. I mean, well, thank you. I I'll have to think about that. <laughs> don't, don't think too hard. You're sort of like um, George R. R. Martin. You know, everyone's waiting for the last book of Game of Thrones, and um, you, you got now. You're gonna have to deliver. You put it out there into the universe. You know how okay. powerful that is. Well, this is a it's a delightful challenge. <laughs> well. I think we could probably talk for another three or four hours, but uh, this seems like a, a good place to uh, to take a break. So um, I don't think this is the end of our conversation. I think this is possibly the beginning because uh, I hope uh, I hope you're right. Yeah, I hope you're right. Well, my, I'm 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 game. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you, I'm very very much. I've enjoyed this tremendously. And thanks to um, the listeners who I think now have a, a better feel for one of the most truly unique people in the game of golf. And uh, um, thank you for listening. 
I would implore you if you haven't to read Golf in the Kingdom and also the Kingdom of Chivas Irons are both so charming. And to hear Michael talk here um, gives you a little taste of it. But I think in the books, it's actually a little more accessible because you have these tour guides, whether it's the protagonist or whether, um, whether it's Chivas himself. So um, anyway, this is Alan Shipnuck signing off for another podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll do it again soon. Major thanks to both of those gentlemen for blessing the drop zone with a great conversation this week. Next week, I hope to up the ante. I sat down with Robert Trent Jones Jr., the golf course architect, for about 40 minutes. It is nonstop golf course architecture nerdery. It is intense stuff, actually. The guy kind of walked, ran golf course architecture circles around me. We talk about his background, his ethos, his designing of Chambers Bay, etc. Be on the lookout for that one. See you then.